Take a moment right now to look around the room and appreciate the hundreds of parents, grandparents, educators, and students gathered here this morning to focus on Chinuch and how we can collaborate to inspire the next generation. This gathering should give us, as a community, great encouragement regarding the value we place on Chinuch. If you take a, mi a minute to look through your program and consider the amazing educators who are here this morning to lead sessions, that too should make us appreciate that our community is in great hands. Ashrenu matov chalkenu manaim goralenu. How lucky we are to be part of such a special community who cares so deeply about the chinuch of our future leaders. Welcome to the Yeshiva University High School for Boys Centennial Yomiyun. On behalf of Dr. Rona Novik and the Israeli Graduate School for Jewish Education and Administration, Rabbi Yaakov Glasser and the Center for the Jewish Future, Mrs. C.B. Nugrishel and the Samuel H. Wang Yeshiva University High School for Girls, and on behalf of the Marsha Stern Talmudical Academy, it is my honor to welcome you here this morning. My name is Rabbi Joshua Khan, and I have the honor and pleasure of serving as the head of school at MTA. I would like to thank our team of professionals who have worked tirelessly on the program this morning. Eliza Barenholtz, the Director of Events at Yeshiva University. Yoni Cohn, the Deputy of the Senior Vice President at Yeshiva University. Arye Charka, the Program Coordinator at the Center for the Jewish Future. Shui Jacobi, the Executive Director at the Yeshiva University High Schools. And Alyssa Schertz, the Director of Institutional Advancement for the Yeshiva University High Schools. Thank you to all the sponsors of this morning's program. I would also like to acknowledge the presence this morning of our board chair of the high schools, Miriam Goldberg, her husband, Alan, a YU tr trustee, Rabbi Dr. Josh Joseph, the senior vice president of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Zulun Harlap, the dean emeritus of REITS and the Yeshiva University High School for Boys, class of 47, Rabbi Dr. Herbert Dobrinsky, the vice president of administration here at Yeshiva University, and Rabbi Hai Arbisfeld, the Vice Chair of the REITS Board of Trustees. It's good to see you here in good health. Bershus, President Joel, President-elect Rabbi Dr. Berman, Rabbi Lord Sachs, Roshe Yeshiva, and colleagues, Hanukkah is approaching. Chinuch, the root of Hanukkah, is a complex word. We use the term to refer to education, but what does it really mean? The Piazetzna Rebbe, Rav Kalanimus Kalman Shapiro, in his Sefer Chovos HaTalmidim, suggests that the word Chinuch means to bring out the potential latent inside that item. Within education, this means that our goals and ambition is not simply to convey knowledge or skills, but rather to help each student consider his or her full potential and help him or her make that in actuality. The process by which we attempt to do this is as complex as diverse as the sessions here this morning, but it is the secret with which we will succeed in inspiring the next generation. If the way in which we enable each student to uncover his or her potential is complex, it requires strong and thoughtful leadership to achieve this goal. We are privileged to have two special leaders of the Yeshiva University community here this morning, President Richard Joel and President-elect Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. 
both of whom are proud alumni of the Yeshiva University High School for Boys. President Joel has led Yeshiva University for 14 years. His vision, warmth, and leadership have brought our beloved Yeshiva University and the broader Jewish community to a whole new level. It's a great honor and privilege this morning to introduce President Joel. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here as almost the ghost of Hanukkah past. Um, it's my great pleasure to be with you. Just one correction, Rabbi Khan, uh, who is a great gift to us, by the way. Rabbi Khan, both uh, Mr. Arbusfeld and uh, Dr. Dobrinsky are also distinguished alumni of Yeshiva University High School. And I found out that uh, the distinction that Mr. Arbusfeld has, and it might be one that's endured the 20 or so years since he left, is that during his tenure at MTA, uh, he did not miss one day of school. One day of school. And, uh, and, and it's consistent with his manner of leadership of the yeshiva and of Yeshiva University that he hasn't taken his thoughts off this institution for one day since then, together with his family. On behalf of Yeshiva University, welcome to the Marcia Stern Talmudic Academy, Yeshiva University High School for Boys, MTA, take your choice. Um, Yeshiva University High School marks its 100th year, and we celebrate, and we celebrate. We celebrate the legions of Jewish families built on the education that we have provided them the number of gifted rabbeim and faculty who have occupied these walls. We, we celebrate the school whose structure and whose values and whose vision, in fact, was the template for what would become Yeshiva College and Yeshiva University and continues to be a school that is as one with Yeshiva, um, that provides a continuity for the best young men in the Jewish world and that has a future that continues to be bright as a lab school uh, that hopefully models the kind of education with its whole fullness that this university stands for. Um, in recent years, MTA has built on its legacy and chartered a destiny that's committed to model next in education, not just best practices, but uh, as my colleague Rabbi Josh Joseph says, next practices. And uh, it's a school that uh, educated the fourth president of Yeshiva University. Uh, my life is measured by sitting in these seats and thinking about where I was at different times. Thank God I'm not holding a lap board anymore. But uh, thank God it's been a continuity. It's also a school that, please God, uh, educated the fifth president of Yeshiva University. A centennial matters not for marking the past alone, but maybe more important for charting the future. Um, and therefore, it is so fitting that my beloved friend, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who serves us with distinction as the Crisel uh, uh, University Professor of Jewish Thought and serves all of us with distinction of marking, describing, teaching to us the splendor uh, of our history and of our future, is joining us to give us a charge regarding both the centennial and education. Um, therefore, it is my great privilege to introduce 
the person who will lead all of us to next, uh, the president-elect of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. Thank you, President Joe, for your kind introduction, and thank you for all of your advice and support over these past number of months. Now is not the appropriate time for me to talk about the multitude of ways in which you've elevated Yeshiva University during your tenure, but it is always the appropriate time for me to acknowledge how honored I am to have been chosen to be your successor. It is also an honor to stand in the presence of one of the intellectual and educational giants of our generation, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I look forward to hearing your words this morning as I eagerly look forward to working with you on future directions of Yeshiva University, the Orthodox community, and the Jewish world at large. I am thankful uh, to all of the people who have worked on this wonderful event and this uh, great year of celebration of our wonderful uh, high school. Um, this morning's event is also part of the Abraham and Millie Arbusfield Yom Rishon program, and I will join the other speakers in thanking Rabbi High and Anna Arbusfield for the support of Yeshiva University REITs and the high schools. Special thanks, of course, to our principal, Rabbi Josh Khan, and our chair, Miriam Goldberg, I look forward to many years of fruitful and productive collaboration as we build the MTA Central Yeshiva University of tomorrow. Sitting amongst us this morning are a number of our distinguished Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbanim, members of the faculty, administration, communal leaders, alumni, and supporters who join together to mark this historic moment in Jewish history. As an alumnus of MTA and the next president of Yeshiva University, I am honored to participate by this morning by offering some introductory remarks to set the stage for this conference. Rabbi Khan referenced the Piazetzna Rebbe in his remarks, uh, referencing actually the Hakdama of the Chovot, uh, the Chovat Talmidim. And the Piazetzna Rebbe was an amazing individual. Uh, he has a fascinating uh, history that is both inspiring and tragic. He was uh, one of the great Hasidic masters of his day, who also became the spiritual leader of the Warsaw Ghetto, and was eventually killed by the Nazis and the Treblinka concentration camp. And in this introduction that Rabbi Khan mentioned, there's two parts. He has this part about the word chinuch, and he has another part that I think is very relevant to why we're here, why we're here this morning. Because he writes this book he sets the stage for his book in this introduction by talking about the unique climate of education in his day. You know, from the 19th century until the 20th century, new ideologies and ideas penetrated the traditional community, and many of its children were being lost to the free-thinking forces of modernity. And in this introduction, Rabbi Shapiro writes that we can't just excuse ourselves from taking responsibility. To paraphrase his words, he writes that we cannot simply put a fault the young, but we must assume the responsibility for the fact that we have not formulated an effective educational model 
that properly relates to our times. We need to first understand the mindset of our children and the context in which they're being raised. And only then will we be able to craft the right educational plan that will meet their needs. Fast forward the story 85 years later, and these words of Rabbi Shapiro certainly resonate strongly today. For the world in which we live today has become that much more complex, simultaneously filled with great blessings and great challenges. We live in an historic and wondrous era in Jewish history with the proliferation of Torah study and books, the high level of professional and economic success, the spread of Jewish culture and Jewish institutions, and most of all, the greatest signal that history has turned the corner, the rise and growth of the Jewish state. But while we believe that we moved into a promising new era in Jewish history, we are also very much aware of the great challenges in our period as well. We live in an anti-authoritarian age in which the conceptual underpinnings and epistemological assumptions of postmodernism, relativism, radical individualism, and historicism seem to undermine some of the foundations of our tradition as well as past educational models of a top-down linear transmission. Together with the great changes in society that are moving at a faster pace than ever before, new technology, new scientific discoveries, new social constructs of family and gender. And it's clear that our children are growing up in a context very different than how we were raised before. Parents today are rightfully confused and somewhat uncertain how to educate their children in this new generation. And this is a central reason. This is a central reason why Yeshiva University is so critical and necessary for the Jewish community today. Who will teach us how to address these new realities, reminding us that our tradition directs us not to run away from the new, but to integrate the world around us into our Torah lives? Who will guide us as to how to capitalize on the blessings of this era while navigating the pitfalls and the dangers? Who will keep us on a march forward in Jewish history so that we fulfill God's mandate and purpose for us in this world. Who will do so if not Yeshiva University? With our top Roshay Yeshiva and rabbis, our professors and instructors from all of our high schools, undergraduate programs, and graduate schools. Yeshiva University, with its multidisciplinary staffing and vast intellectual resources, is uniquely capable of bringing together the thought leaders of our era and shining a light on our future from multiple perspectives, including rabbinic, psychological, legal, economic, and educational. My friends, if there is a time that is made for Yeshiva University, it is this time. If there is a moment in which the Jewish world and the broader society needs to hear the sophisticated voices of Yeshiva University voices that blend a deep understanding of contemporary culture with the authentic perspective of tradition, it is this moment. This is why it is so fitting that we embark on this centennial year of MTA and, and on this, uh, with this Yom Yun. For this conference and this centennial do not simply mark the end of a hundred years of service, but it loudly proclaims our profound importance to the next century as well rooted in Yirat Shamayim and aspiring to connect with Avinu Shabbat Shamayim. 
understanding our place in history and capitalizing on our opportunities, being responsive and responsible to the contemporary Jewish experience. This is our time. This is our moment. And we will continue our work to understand the opportunities and challenges of our day in order to craft the right educational model as per the words of the Pezetzna Rebbe so that our children will find great success and meaning in their lives. As the next president of Yeshiva University, I look forward to partnering with each and every one of you as we need the collective wisdom, energies, and resources of all the members of our community and all those who wish to participate in our success, building on the accomplishments of our past, growing to meet the needs of today, and working together to build the Yeshiva University of tomorrow. Thank you very much to President Joel and to President-elect Rabbi Dr. Berman. I want to build on the words of, Pre of President-elect Rabbi Dr. Berman and publicly thank the Arbisfelds one last time because over the last month, Rabbi Mrs. Arbisfeld has worked with us to set up a scholarship fund here at MTA in memory of his late father, Abraham Arbisfeld. Rabbi Arbisfeld's gift of $1 million to celebrate our centennial is an expression of his hakara satov, his deep gratitude to our high school for the education it provided for him while he attended on full scholarship. And as President Joel mentioned, in gratitude to that, he did not miss a day while at MTA and is giving back and paying it forward, hopefully inspiring others to join with him in this cause of providing the excellent MTA education for everyone, regardless of financial situation. Thank you, Rabbi Arvisfeld. Our keynote speaker this morning has written extensively on Torah values, leadership, and Jewish education. As an avid follower of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs' teachings, there's a quote that stands out to me because of how it captures the importance of Jewish education. And the quote reads, long ago, the Jewish people came to the conclusion that to defend a country, you need an army, but to defend a civilization, you need schools. This single most important social institution is the place where we hand on our values to the next generation, where we tell our children where we've come from, where, what ideals we fought for, and what we learned on the way. Schools are where we make our children our partners in the long and open-ended task of making a more gracious world. As we celebrate the Yeshiva University High School for Boys, Boys Centennial and look into the future, we turn to someone who has been a presence on our campus has spoken to our student body and is a world-renowned speaker and visionary, drawing on an incredible breadth of knowledge, using his keen insight of human psychology and communicating it with great clarity and wisdom. Our keynote speaker this morning, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, will help us consider what the next 100 years of Jewish education can look like. It is a great honor to present Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs.
Vodah Rabbanim, beloved friends, it's an enormous privilege to join you on this momentous occasion and to play a small part in celebrating the history of a remarkable institution, MTA. May I first, before I begin, um, say personally, but I think on behalf of all of us, certainly on behalf of Elena and myself, but on the whole of diaspora jury, to salute President Richard Joel for the incredible work you've done for YU. You've led with passion, with humor, and with energy, and you've done a great job. And friends, uh, you couldn't have chosen better than your wonderful president-elect, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, who is just terrific and is going to do great things. I... I will warn you of one thing, Rabbi Berman. After three years in the chief rabbinate, I came to a conclusion which I share with you, that the greatest chesed Hashem ever does for us is he never lets us know in advance what we're letting ourselves in for. (laughs) But he never fails to give us the strength to meet all those challenges, and he will give you the strength to take YU to ever greater heights. Friends, uh, to celebrate MTA is something very special. This is a school 100 years old. That means it was built at a time when American Jewry didn't really fully appreciate the need for Jewish day schools. And it created the model, which actually changed the whole face of American Jewry. It led to hundreds of other Jewish day schools. It was the first of its kind, and it became a model for others. It has always and continues today to teach Torah, the Mura Kodesh, at the highest possible level, and at the same time to teach Chochmat HaOlam, what is sometimes called secular studies, to an equally high level. And it is really, really an outstanding school. We knew when we looked, when I first became Chief Rabbi, and we did all the research. We looked at every piece of research ever done, not only about Jews, but about Catholics and other minority communities. We asked, what gives them the strength to survive, to hand their values on to the next generation, and to flourish in new circumstances? And we came to the conclusion that the biggest single factor without remote competitor is day schools. Jewish day schools build the Jewish future. And Because MTA not only is that and has been that for 100 years, but because it showed American Jewry that truth, this is something really remarkable. And the fact is that uh, it's a very, very special institution. I, too, of course, want to thank Rabbi Arbusfeld for everything he's done and everything he will do. And a special personal thanks, if I may. No, I think we all are indebted to her. Uh, the chair of your governors, uh, Miriam Goldberg. Miriam, you've done incredible things for the school. And to you and your husband, Alan, are just an enormous gift to the Jewish people, and may Hashem continue to bless you. The school is so blessed with its new head teacher, Rabbi Khan, I have to tell you, Rabbi Khan, the first thing we dub him for in the morning, the first Kaddish we say is Kaddish to Rabbanan. We don't worry about anything else. We want 
Hashem to bless us with Rabbanim Chachamim. And what do we pray for? What do we say to Hashem? Please give a Rabbanan Chino Vechista Varachim. Yeah, he wants us to make sure we can uh, learn a Marsha and a learn a, a Ketos. But the first thing we pray for is that they should have grace, kindness, and compassion. Hashem has blessed you with a double share of all those things. And you will take MTA, Bezrat Hashem, with your wonderful staff, your incredible governors, your superb parents, but above all, your blessed and wonderful children. May you take it to new heights, Mylin Kodesh, and MTA is privileged to have you. We wish you every success. <clears throat> Friends, I was asked to address the following subject. How, among all the conflicting pressures of today, do we inspire our children to love Yiddishkeit, to go out there into the world and be a source of pride to us, and so on? The the pressures today are very, very significant, and they're troubling. The world out there, the West out there, has lost some of the most basic institutions of social continuity, marriage, the family, community, moral values. Our kids, sorry, not our kids, our grandchildren. Why do we have grandchildren? So that somebody can tell us how to work this computer thing, you know. And uh, they, they, you know, they're all addicted to this. And and one of the results of it is they have ever-shortened attention spans. I try to imagine what would happen if Moshe Rabbeinu went up Har Sinai today to receive the Torah of Yisrael. And a Kaddish Baruch would say to him, Moshe Rabbeinu, listen, just prepare yourself. This is going to take 40 days. He says, Hashem, could you get it down into 140 characters, please? <laughs> uh, you know, how do you have the attention span even to concentrate on something as big and as powerful as the West's greatest and longest-lived religious heritage? Our computers are so intelligent these days. My smartphone gives me an inferiority complex. I don't know. I, the last one I had, I, this one I haven't learned to work yet, but the last one I had, had somebody inside called Siri. Have you come across this? I, I don't know whether the American Siri is different from the British Siri, but I have conversations with Siri. We had tutorials. I said, Siri, tell me, who do you really love? He replied, this is really, said, true. He replied, this is about you, it's not about me. <laughs> I said, Siri, tell me something. Does God exist? It replied, well, it's all a bit of a mystery to me. <laughs> Terrific thing. So when you've got an age of smartphones, information overload, short attention spans, what do you do? And if you will f- permit me, I'm going to give you ten rules, which if you follow them, will ensure that you are blessed with children and grandchildren who will carry their Jewishness with pride. Here they are, ten rules. Sorry, I only just worked this out this morning, so I couldn't give you notes, but uh, here it is. I'm going to begin with rule one. I want to tell you a story about one of the most moving days of my life. It happened, I think, just uh, within the last, uh, certainly in the last year, Something happened. I won something called the Templeton Prize. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's nice, you know. 
And it's a big thing. It's supposed to be the Nobel Prize for Religion. It comes with a big prize. They do a big ceremony. And you give a speech. I spent months on this speech. I thought it was a pretty good speech. I got up. I delivered the speech. Sit in a room like this. And then completely unknown to me and to Elaine, our youngest daughter, Gila, got up. And she made a speech. And after that speech, when I left the room, they said to me, Rabbi Sachs, we thought you were okay, but forget it, forget it. Compared to your daughter, Gila, you know, just move aside. She's better than you are. And I suddenly realized what it felt like. It's famous Gemara in Baba Metzia, you remember? When... Uh, a voice comes from heaven and says, Rabbi Eliezer, and Rabbi Yeshua gets up and says, and the Gemara wants to know what happened in heaven the day that his children down here outvoted HaKadosh Baruch And the Gemara says, what did he do? He smiled and he said, Nitzchuni banai, Nitzchuni banai, which roughly means, my children are cleverer than I am. Rule one. Do not ask, how do I inspire my children? Ask, have I made space for my children to inspire me? That is rule one, and it's a very, very important rule. Rule two, here it goes. Let me say a little bit about my experience as a child. My late parents, Aleim Shalom, were very special people but they didn't have the chances we had. My dad, Oliver Shalom, sold schmatters in the London equivalent of what you would call the Lower East Side, left school at the age of 14. My mother left school at the age of 16. They never had a real education, Jewish or secular. And they used, people used to ask my father, how come, Mr. Sachs, you had four boys, and they went to Cambridge University and they all stayed from. And he said, well, it's simple. Their mother. And I, I say about that, he was half right. But the short answer is, my brothers and I looked at my parents, who didn't know very much. And we saw and we knew without any, anyone ever having to say a word that they were Ashrei Yoshvei Vesecha. When they were in shul, they felt at home. They were Ashreham Shekachalo. Because they were Jewish, they walked with pride. They loved Yiddishkeit. We saw this. They didn't need to say anything. This is how they were. The Al Sheikh asked a simple question. There's a mitzvah. Al Sheikh says, How can you give an obligation on a parent to hand their values on to their children if you never know it's not entirely dependent on you, it's half dependent on them? How can we be commanded for something that is not entirely BRD? And he gave the following answer. He said, The Torah answers that question two verses earlier. If you love Hashem with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, you will hand your tradition onto your children. That is powerful. That is what Wordsworth meant in the prelude when he said, what we love, others will love, and we will show them how. I have to tell you that uh, when you come from a family of four boys, 
there's one moment in the year that is very, very uncomfortable. When you get to the Seder and you're reading the Haggadah and you're talking about Kenegad Arab Banim Dibrab Torah. And you know what it feels like to think that one of us is a Chacham and one of us is a Rasha and one is Tam and one is Shaina Yudelisho. I tell you that passage used to give me great pain. I thought to myself, how can any parent think a child is a Rasha? For heaven's sake. You know, we read a week ago, Esav was a Rasha. But who cares whether your son is a Rasha? You love your son. You don't call him a Rasha. The Torah specifies a case where the child is a Rasha, the Ben Sarah Umora. And yet Rabbi Shimon Bayachai said, Lo Hayov, Lo Osid Leos, Ben Zaramura. Who's going to get up and say, My son is, is irredeemable? It can't be. You cannot be. So I want, if I may, to give you a tight on this. First of all, I want to tell you that the Arba Banim is all of us. We begin by being a Sheena Yudele Show, then we grow up a little bit and we become a Tom. And then we become teenagers and we rebel a little bit. So we have years when we look like a Russia. But then, if we hang in there, we become Kulonu Chachom. So being a Russia is a stage in all of our lives. But now I want to tell you how I understand the Sugi in the, in the, in the Haggadah. You remember what makes him a Russia? Moa Voda Azaz Lachem, Lachem let me ask you a question. How old is this son? Is he past the mitzvah or not yet the mitzvah? If he's past the mitzvah, if he's a god already, then there's a locha, Rahil Rambam, Hilchas Mamri, Perik, hey, Hamakez, Benoha Gadol, Ove Mishuim, Lifnei Velo, Titein Mishuim. Your son is grown up. Don't provoke him by calling him a rasha, by God forbid hitting him. If the son is less than B'mitzvah, is he Mitzvah? He isn't. So when he asks, Mom, Dad, what does this mean to you? He's asking the right question. You have the Mitzvah. I don't have it yet. So if he's older than 13, you can't say what you're saying. And if he's younger than 13, you can't say. So what's the answer? I want to suggest a very simple thing. I mean, you read it in my Haggadah, but it's very simple. What he says is, Mom, Dad, what does Yiddishkeit mean to you? I know what it's supposed to mean to me. You sent me to a Jewish day school. You wanted me to go to Yeshiva. You wanted me to learn. I know what it's supposed to mean to me. But when I see you living a Jewish life, I don't see you taking any pleasure in it. When you daven, I don't see you putting your heart and soul into it. You keep all the halachas, but it doesn't change your way of life. Tell me what it means to you. If we are to hand on Yiddishkeit to our children, we have got to say, I love this, and that's why I want you to love it. And that is what we have to do. If you want rule two, if you want your children to love Yiddishkeit, you have to love Yiddishkeit. And that love will come through. Even if you're not articulate or eloquent, that love will come through and you will have children and grandchildren of whom you are proud.
Number rule two, love Judaism and your children will. Number three, we know why Akadosh Baruch Hu chose Noah. He had all the qualifications. No, he didn't come to YU, but then it didn't exist yet. None of those things are said about Avram Avinu. None. So why did God choose Avram Avinu? There's only one place in the Torah that tells us why Avram was chosen. Answer, because Avram was chosen so that he would bring up his children in his household, that they would keep the way of the Lord. He was chosen to be a parent. That's what his name means. Avram, mighty parent. Avraham, Avhamun Goyim. Abraham and Sarah were chosen because they were parents. Because they knew how to be a parent. However, let me ask you the question. What are the next words? Vashamru derech Hashem? Lasot, tzedakah, umishpat. To do righteousness and justice. When Avram sends his servant to find a wife for the first Jewish child, Yitzchak, what does his servant look for? A woman who will give water not only to a stranger but to her camels. I tell you, I find it very hard to find a stray camel in Gola's Green, so I'm not very good at this kind of thing. But... The truth is, instinctively he knows what, what wife for my father's son, for my master's son, a gomelet chasadim. That is what it's all about. You can teach your kids everything else about Yiddishkeit. They can know the Mishnah Brura Balpeh. But they have to see you living a life of tzedakah and mishpat and chesed and racham. You will not hand Judaism on to your kids unless it comes wrapped up in the highest moral and ethical teachings, and not just teachings, but behavior as well. You have to make sure that you, as a Jew, are living a life of honesty and integrity and sensitivity and compassion, that you care about others, whether they're from or they're not from, and your children will grow. That is the sunshine that will make them flower. What happened immediately before that choice of Avram? Three strangers passed by. Avram's just had a Brit Milah at the age of, well, you know, we shouldn't know such things, you know. But uh, a third day after the Milah, what's he doing? He's sitting looking to be Machnis Orchem. I want some visitors to. He didn't ask, who are you? Uh, did you go to YU or to... Which yeshiva did you go to? Ah, you went to that, and then come in and zogat This is what Judaism is about. It is about lifting us so that we live by the highest ethical and spiritual ideas. The Gemara says, Does it make a difference to HaKadosh Baruch Hu how we shecht an animal? Ella, but to teach us, God gave us these disciplines to refine us. So whenever I find a lack of honesty or integrity or menschlichkeit in the religious community, I think this is a stiramineo bay. You cannot live like this because your ki- you may live with that con- conflicting message, but your kids won't. 
They'll walk. Always live and teach your kids to live by the highest possible ethical standards. That is rule three. Rule four. Um, listen, <laughs> I wasn't going to say this, but we had a little conversation last night, so I'm going to say it anyway. Um, how do you sustain the ethos of Torah Umada, of learning both Limude Kodesh and Chokhmah? Because it's not the most fashionable thing today, right? There's so many people who are saying, look, let me just go to yeshiva and let me spend my life learning. I don't need to go to a university. I don't need to get a degree. I don't need these things. I'm afraid that is a very powerful formula for some, but not for all, not for most, and for some time, but certainly not for all time. And people raised with us with me last night a little gathering we had, and I reminded them of what Rashi says in you remember, he says to the spies, go and see the land. What's the land like? What are the people like? Go and see what the cities are like. Are they open or are they walled? And they come back and say, hey, we saw very fortified cities. And they think if the cities are strong, the people are strong. But if you know Rashi, Rashi says, Simon Masalam. Moshe Rabbeinu gave the spies a sign. If they live in open cities, Siman that's a sign that they are strong. They're not afraid of anyone. They don't need walls. They know their own strength. But if they're surrounded by high walls, they're defensive, they want to keep the outside world outside. Siman hu that is a sign that they are weak. I have to tell you that, uh, you know, I can't believe that our faith is so weak that we don't believe it can face the challenges of our time. I, quite, I have wonderful atheist friends. You, you know, you're, you're Richard Dawkins, you've got Sam Harris. I... Uh, Went to university in Oxford and Cambridge. I have had the zuchut of teaching, of course, in YU, that's the best of the lot, but, you know, in the lesser league in Yale and Harvard and Princeton. And in all that time, I can tell you, and I did not spend most of my, all of my time learning Limude Kodesh. I spent my time studying philosophy, psychology, economics, sociology. Never once... Did I have one single doubt, not even a microsecond of doubt, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of Moshe Emes Vitoroso Emes, not for one moment. Why? Because I knew from my parents, this is something that makes you good. This is something that makes you look at the world with love. This is something real that sustained our people for 4,000 years. So what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of atheists. I'm afraid of a secular culture. Rabbonu Shalom. This faith was good enough for my ancestors for 4,000 years. It's good enough for me, and I'm afraid of nothing. I do not need to live behind high walls. You don't need to have your kids live behind high walls. What you need to do is give them the confidence and the knowledge to live in the world without fear, and they will be every single one of them. So, for heaven's sake, 
Don't be afraid. Reb Tzadok HaKohen said, in the beginning, God wrote a book, and he called it the universe. Then he wrote a commentary to the book, and he called it Torah. You need to understand the universe. If you're to apply Torah as the commentary to the universe, you need to understand economics. You, need to, you remember what Rabbi Yoshua said to Rabbi Gamliel? Chaval, that we have a leader who doesn't understand economics and how hard it is to make a living. He thought not understanding the outside world invalidated him as, as Nasi. We have to understand the world if we're to apply Torah to the world and the God of creation, the God of, of the universe, that we approach through natural sciences, understanding the world as the work of God, and through human sciences, understanding the human being as the image of God, those things allow us to apply terror to the world. So rule four, do not think that you protect your children by screening them from the challenges of the world. Rule four, you protect your children by teaching them to have the courage and confidence to face the challenges of the world. That's rule four. Rule five. Spirituality. There was a chief rabbi of Israel, Rav Shapiro, who told me once a story about two Gedolei Yisrael in the 19th century. One of them he had the zuchus that all his children stayed from. The other one lost his children. They became maskilim and they were lost to Judaism. He said the difference between the two Gedolim was Sudash Lishit. He said one of the Gedolim at every Sudash Lishit would give a Chiddush and the other one would sing Zemiris. Whose children do you say, think stayed within the flock? The one who sang Zemiris. We sometimes forget that Judaism is not just cognitive. It's affective. It's not just a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. It's not just the prefrontal cortex. It's the limbic system. It's the emotions. Judaism has to have music in it. It has to sing. Did you notice in the Midbar, every time Jews spoke, they argued? But as Yoshia Moshe of Israel, when they sang, they sang together. Why? Because at the level of the mind, words are the language of the mind. And at the level of the mind, two Jews, three opinions. But music is the language of the soul. And at the level of the soul, the whole of Israel is When we sing, we sing together. Judaism is music. David Amalek was the most beautiful musician. We have a book called Shir Hashirim, the Kodesh HaKodeshim of Judaism is a song of songs. You remember, you know, I've, since I'm, I don't know, am I technically retired or not retired? I can't remember. I know I can see from the sign here that I'm supposed to be reserved, but that's a slight exaggeration. So I don't know, maybe retired is also. But I think, you know, in terms of career moves, right? I want you to imagine Moshe Rabbeinu, he's in 119 in 11 months. He's given 612 mitzvahs to Israel. Wouldn't you retire at that point? Been there, done that, you know? He says, no, I need to give them one last command. Mitzvah number 613, which was 
the mitzvah on everyone, even if you inherited the Sefer Torah from your parents, it's a mitzvah for you to write or take part in the writing of the Sefer Torah for yourself. Why? Why was this the last command he gave? Because he said to the Bnei Yisrael, Kindelach, I'm going to another place. But I don't want you ever to say to your children, I received Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu. I want you to have your children make Torah new again in every generation. They have to write a Sefer Torah for themselves. And what did he call the Torah? Vatakitvulachem etashirahazam. In that place, and only in that place, did he call Torah a song. Why? Because song is the language of emotion. And you want to hand on your Yiddishkeit to your next generation so that they will write a Torah for themselves. It has to sing. Forgive me, but I once was asked, what is faith? By a leading British non-faith kind of guy. And I said, faith is the ability to hear the music beneath the noise. Judaism must sing. Rule five, sing your Judaism. Give it heart as well as mind, and you will hand it on. Rule six, this is a simple question. What's the Hebrew for education? Sorry, I'm I'm just a little jet-lagged, so you'll have to help me out here. What's the Hebrew for education? We just heard it, right? Chinuch, right? Wrong. The Hebrew for education is Talmud Torah. That is the Hebrew for education. Chinuch does not mean education. Let me explain to you. Talmud Torah is the Torah we learn from teachers and from books. We learn by listening and we learn by reading. Chinuch, which is more properly translated as induction, is what we learn by doing. When the Chazal talk about when you get your son of 11 or 12 or your daughter to practice fasting, even though they're not obligated, or you have your child put on tefillin before his bar mitzvah, that's chinuch. Talmud Torah is learning by listening and by reading. Chinuch is learning Torah by doing. And that's something else altogether. And I have to tell you this, that uh, we have to uh, let our kids do stuff, as well as learn stuff. The year before I came, the year before I came, Chief Rabbi, I put it off. You know, Augustine made the famous statement, Dear Lord, give me virtue, but not yet. So when they said, Be Chief Rabbi, I said, Fine, but not yet. So we spent a year in Yerushalayim, Elaine and I and our children, they were young once upon a time, and, you know, we were going to find peace of mind, Baruch Hashem, with our muzzle. We found ourselves in the middle of the first Gulf War. And, uh, but it, the, they introduced me to, uh, I went and I paid a visit to, is it called the Melton Center? Or the, the Department of Education at the Hebrew University. And all the professors of education at the Hebrew University came and we sat and we, and it, we did something a little unusual. Instead of asking everyone to introduce themselves by their area of expertise, somebody said, why don't you, each of you tell us why you decided to devote 
your life to Jewish education? And do you know what they answered? Every single one of them, without exception, my youth group. And it turned out that they had professors in every field of education except one, youth groups. We have done the research in Britain. I'm sure you've done it here in America. It tells us that formal Jewish education, formal Jewish education makes a huge impact cognitively. Kids who've been through Jewish day schools know a lot, but it hasn't an enormous impact affectively, emotionally. We discover that, in fact, if we send non-committed kids to Jewish day schools, they come out knowing enough, but no more committed than they were when they went in. What makes all the difference to commitment is informal Jewish education. And the reason that youth groups had such a power is that they said to young people, go and lead. We're not, you're, you are led by yourselves. You are going to become leaders. And because they became leaders, because these youth groups gave them responsibility, they grew as Jews. And they, many of them, as I say, devoted their whole lives to Jewish education. Somebody once asked me how many Norwegians live in Washington. Um, I think the answer is not many, am I right? I'm not an American, I don't know. I think not many. And he said to me, well, look, there's one house in Washington. He said, if you're a Norwegian in Washington, there's a fair chance you'll assimilate. But there's one house in Washington where outside, the, the, in the front garden, they have the Norwegian flag. Inside that, pictures of scenes from Norway. They observe every Norwegian festival. The people in that house will never assimilate. What house is it? It's the home of the Norwegian ambassador. He said, ambassadors never assimilate. We have to give our kids the mandate, the empowerment, that they should go out there and be ambassadors for Yiddishkeit among their less religious friends, among their students. That is what it is to be a Jew. Atem edain, whom Hashem said, Isaiah, you are my witnesses, says God. You are my ambassadors. Every one of us is a shagriya shalakarosh baruchu. And when you're an ambassador, you never assimilate. So, rule six, empower our children to become leaders. Not just follow, to become leaders. The better leaders they are, the better followers they will be. Rule seven. I refuse the title Modern Orthodoxy. Forgive me. I really don't like it. I know I'm going to upset you all, but what the hell, I'm leaving, flying back to England in a couple of hours. Shall I tell you why I don't like the phrase Modern Orthodoxy? Because it implies Orthodoxy is good and Modern is good. And yes, Orthodoxy is eminence. But modernity, yes, some of it's good, but my goodness me, not all of it. I think we've got to have, teach our children not to assume that everything they see around them is right. No, we're not modern. We're people of eternity. We live in the world, but not of the world. We keep a certain distance from the world because some of it's good, but some of it is frankly terrible. And our children must understand that is our gift as Jews. I have never seen a more stark contrast than that between Avram and Lot. In Bereshit chapter 18, well, in, in the whole story, Lot assimilates. Lot Yoshev uh, Bashar here, 
He assimilates. They've just made him a judge. His daughters have married local boys. And Avram lives on it by himself, true to his own values. He prays for his neighbors. He fights for his neighbors, but he doesn't live like his neighbors. Now, who do you think is more accepted? The person who assimilates or the person who it doesn't? Let me tell you what I think is the first recorded piece of anti-Semitism in all of literature. When the people of the town come to Lot's house and they say, bring us, bring us out your guests, and he says, no, they've done. And they say, ha'echad balagur v'shafot shafot. Look at this upgekommener who just arrived here, and he presumes to judge us. I think that is the first anti-Semitic sentence in history. He tried to assimilate. He thought they'll accept me. Forget it. He's not one of us. He's a temporary resident. But Avram, who lived true to his values, who fought for his neighbors and prayed for them, but did not live like them, they say, You are a prince of God in our midst. So I want us to, rule seven, teach our kids, you don't go with the flow. Jews have been around a very long time. We don't need to go with the flow. Jews are the people who have the courage to be different. And that is what you have to teach your kids. Some of modernity is great. Some of it's terrible. And you have to be true to yourself. And then people will say, Rule 8. We live in a world of uh, instant gratification. Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat. What's Snapchat? And the end result is kids can't concentrate for very long. Already 15 years ago, you do a bit of broadcasting for the BBC in the main news program in the morning. They give me a piece of, I take a piece of immediate news and I give a religious reflection on it. Already 15 years ago, they cut it down from 3 minutes to 2 minutes, 45 seconds, on the grounds that nobody can concentrate for 3 minutes anymore. So you think, our kids are thinking, you know, what, we've got to sit and we've got to learn all this stuff. Let me tell you what you have to say to your kids. And let me be very blunt. Bill Gates, who created Microsoft. Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who created Google. Mark Zuckerberg, who created Facebook. I love that story, don't you? He has a row with his girlfriend, goes off in a huff and invents Facebook. That's such a Jewish thing to do. (laughs) Jeff Bezos of Amazon.com. You think these people have short attention spans? I don't know of any business people in our time who thought longer than Bill Gates and Sergey Brin and Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. Did you think you could change the world with a search engine? Did you think you could change the world with a bookshop that nobody can go into? These guys played it long. We are the people who played it the longest of any civilization in history. If we want to give our kids a competitive edge in a world where nobody can concentrate on anything for very long, then the more they learn and the more they keep Yiddishkeit, the better equipped they are for facing this world of instantaneous and total change. Freud said, civilization is the ability to defer the gratification of instinct. 
Have you heard of a Jewish uh, social psychologist called Walter Mischel? Walter Mischel, already a long time ago, 50 years ago, he just brought out the book, but the experiment was 50 years old. It's called the marshmallow test. Do you know this test? You know, you take a kid at four, you put it in a room with one marshmallow, you leave it in the room for tw a kid in the room alone for 20 minutes, you tell him, you can have the marshmallow now, or if you can wait for 20 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. Depending on how that kid does at the age of four, you can predict with accuracy how it's going to do in its SATs, in its university career, have a happy marriage, a successful career. You teach the law. What is Bozabucholov? What is what is the whole of Judaism if not a lifelong training in deferring the gratification of instinct you eat mate, go okay you'll wait six hours before you have the milchik marshmallow if you can wait six hours before you have the milchik marshmallow you'll do Harvard it's a walkover this ancient Torah of ours is the most modern thing imaginable I can't think of anything more calculated but to teaching our kids to succeed in the world out there than to control their desires in here. And that's what Judaism is. Rule nine. Teach your kid, rule eight. Teach your kids to play it long. Finally, no, penultimately, rule nine. What is happiness? What is a meaningful life? They've done a survey in this. It's called the Grant Study in Harvard since 1934. You know this study? The long, it's, it's the longest longitudinal study of all time. They took Harvard graduates from around that time. Then, of course, just to balance it up, some people in the local prison and some very gifted women. And they put them all together. I know George Phelan. I had the privilege of knowing George Phelan, who ran it until very recently. His wonderful books like Aging Well and so on. What are the sources of happiness? Beginning, middle, and end. Relationships. The quality of your marriage. The quality of your family life the quality of your community. There is no civilization in the entire world that has been more powerful and successful in creating strong marriages, strong families, and strong communities than Judaism. You give that to your kids today, a, a thousand years ago, a thousand years from now, I guarantee you having a successful marriage, a strong family, and a supportive community will give your kids the biggest chance of happiness they can have under any circumstances whatsoever. I did a program for the BBC years ago, a television documentary on the state of marriage in Britain because nobody else was willing to do it. And I took, I, it's a story I tell. I took Britain, a non-Jewish lady called Penelope Leach who was Britain's leading childcare expert to a Jewish school. I thought, bring a non-Jew that doesn't know any Jews, never been to a Jewish school. She's Britain's leading expert on childcare. I'll take her to a Jewish primary school. I took her to a school Friday morning. Uh, you know what they do? They do the Mok Shabbat, the five-year-old mother and father blessing the five-year-old children, and there are the five-year-old Bubun Zayda Sheping Nachas. And Penelope Leach had never seen anything like this, never seen anything at all like this. And she was talking to the kids, you know, what do you like about Shabbos? What don't you like about Shabbos? This five-year-old boy said, it's terrible, you can't watch television, it's terrible. She said, what do you like about Shabbos? This five-year-old boy said, what I like about Shabbos is the only day of the week daddy doesn't have to rush off. As I was leaving the school, 
Penelope Leach turned to me and said, Shifrawa, you know that Sabbath of yours is saving their parents' marriages. I thought that was a very powerful thing. I had the zuhut of being quite close to some leading politicians in Britain. And many of them were interested in community and civil society. And one of them said to me, Rabbi Sachs, can you explain to me what is community? And I said, look, here's, I'll explain to you what is community. I said, I go around the world, right around the world. I give lectures on various subjects. I talk about this, I talk about that. I said, when we're together for coffee after the lecture, everyone comes up to me to ask me questions. And it's always the same question. Do you know who I am? I know who you are. Do you know who I am? You know, my second cousin was engaged to your daughter's au pair or whatever it is, or my, my next-door neighbor play bridge with your third cousin seven times removed. You know, I said, that's community. I said, you want a definition of your community? It's a place where they know your name and where they miss you when you're not there. I tell you, there is no other culture, ethnic group who has community like we have community. It binds us together. So rule nine is Judaism will give our kids that strength, that confidence, that support that will steer them through life so that whatever they go through, even if they go through tough times, they will have the support of a loving family and a caring community. That's rule nine. And finally, Rule 10, I said I would go back to roughly where I began. And Hevra, I want to tell you this. Listen carefully. Some of you may have heard me say it before, but it's the single most important thing that happened to me in my life. Here it is. When I was four, five, six, I used to go with my father, Oliver Shalom, to shul. And on the way back, I would ask him questions. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And my father always gave me the same answer, and this was his answer. He said, Jonathan, I did not have the privilege of a Jewish education, so I cannot answer your questions. But one day, you will have the Jewish education that I didn't have, and when that happens, you will teach me the answers to those questions. And if you want to know how I became a chief rabbi, that's the answer. Do you know what a zechut it is for your parents to say to you, teach us? I mean, that is just stunning. That is beautiful. You know what it is to be a child? Everything you have, your parents have given to you. So what can you give them back that isn't theirs already? You know there's a halacha in Judaism, which is one of the strangest halachas anywhere in the world. Even a poor person who is entirely dependent on charity has to be given enough so that he or she can give to charity. Why? Because charity is not just about your physical needs or your material needs. It's about your spiritual and psychological needs. And if you only receive and you don't give, you have no dignity. And our kids receive everything from us. So what chance do they have to give something back? And the short answer is we have to make that space for our kids so that they feel they are giving something back to us. There's a machlokes bavli virushalmi. 
Listen to the Yushalmi. Amar Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Kol hamelaben es ben beno Torah. The biggest zechus in life is to teach Torah to your grandchildren. It's, if you teach Torah to your grandchildren, it's as if you stood at Sinai. That's the Bavli. Listen to you, Shalmi. Also in the name of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. It's the same sugya, but a different version of it. He says the following: Call me Shehu Shomea Parsha, me Ben Bano, Ki Ilu Hushomea Mehar Sinai. He says the greatest zechus is not that you teach Torah to your grandchildren, but that your grandchildren teach Torah to you. I hold like the Yushomea. If you allow your children to become your teachers, and especially your grandchildren, I can't begin to tell you how much more our grandchildren know than us. We have a six-year-old grandchild who comes and says, Saba, I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm going to make it easy for you. <laughs> that, to me, is pure delight. The question is not, do we inspire our children? The question is, do we allow our children to inspire us? Here is my concluding axiom. Children grow to fill the space we create for them. If that space is small, if all we want them to do is do what we tell them to do, they will stay small. If that space is large, if we shed nachas from them, if we give them responsibility, if we fill them full of love and let them walk on ahead, as God said to Abraham, don't wait for me, you walk on ahead, then we will have children who walk tall, and then we will be able to know. We will have children and grandchildren who bring pride to us and blessing to the world. Amen.